If you build this, you need to learn how to assess it. And you need, and if you're, and, you know, and if you're building this piece of technology, like you should talk to someone before you actually enter into a deal to sell it, because it may actually be worth more than what you think. And you know, when you're dealing with bigger companies, like if you're a small little company and you're young, like be aware of what you built, right? And be aware of that IP and how valuable it can exactly. be to somebody else. Because you know, what I didn't know is that's why they were really buying us. I thought they wanted our client base and I thought they were very interested in some of the, like the leads. And- your legacy is your brand, what you're building. We want to inspire a generation of entrepreneurs to fearlessly create things that matter with a community that supports, motivates, and guides them towards victory as they take on the giants standing in their way. This is the Battle Ready Brands Podcast. The economy is constantly changing. Today's brands need a battle strategy that is tested and proven to help them win. Suit up. It's time to get battle ready. And here are your hosts, Matt Kretzman and Brad Parnell. Hey guys, welcome to the uh, next episode of the Battle Ready Brands podcast. And when I say that, my voice changes. I don't know why. Sounds great. A little <laughs> bit got, gritty. We got something right here, yeah. But uh, we are the podcast that's fueling brands to endure. Brad Parnell over here, co-host. How are you feeling today, Brad? I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Excited to have uh, Jordan on the show with us. and um, Jordan and Matt. Yep, Jordan and Matt. Yep. We're doing this, so it's, it's right. going to be a good day. Thank Not this guys. Matt, other Matt. So, hey right. guys, thanks for being on the show today. Jordan and Matt from DFO Global. What's up, guys? How's it going? Going great, man. How <clears throat> good to talk to you. All the way from uh, New York City. That's right. Hey, it's good to talk to you guys. Huh? How you doing? <laughs> we can scream like we're from Brooklyn out of some Edward Norton movie, you know? And my, yeah, or Boston. Can you do the Boston accent? Uh, no, but we, we have a guy in the office from Boston, so we can get him in here. He yeah, knows he, Boston. He, 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 and then he, can, and uh, he can do the Yankees versus Red Sox chant. <laughs> you know, it's funny. So I'm looking at you guys, and I'm looking at my Matt here, and then I'm looking at you, and I'm like, oh, you guys have like a similar cut going on. And then we both, and then you and I both have the hats on, and while they're right. I know, man. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's hilarious. We, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about you, Matt, but I haven't showered in like three or four days, so Jordan can sort of yeah, smell yeah. me. Well, yeah. maybe if you haven't showered too, maybe that's the smell we were talking well, about in the office. Honestly, I'm choosing not to shower <laughs> because it already stinks in the office, so <laughs> I, I don't need to. It matter yeah and here i like and now i'm looking at the background there and you know battle ready brands and i'm looking at our white wall here and i'm like man we have this really cool new york office and all you get to look at is like our two ugly mugs yeah, and this white wall right here it's really wall. sad honestly honestly when you guys jumped on i thought you were floating in the sky or something <laughs> <laughs> or it's a green screen and i'm waiting for yeah, that. I say, that would this would be a really good green screen like i put like a volcano erupting in the back here or like a giant vacuum Something like yeah. that. I think that would be good. Exactly. I know. And we should be able to make that happen. We're all technology guys, so yeah, we'll, 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 we'll figure it out. But uh, anyways, guys, give us the give us the four one one. What are you guys doing? What's exciting? Who's DFO Global? What does that stand for? Yeah, sure. So, um, at, you know, as you said, Jordan, uh, you know, I'm the founder of DFO or co-founder of DFO. Um, we're about seven years old now. So DFO, um, so it's DFO Global Performance Commerce. We're, um, you know, a leader in the, you know, the performance commerce space, um, basically focusing on all things e-commerce. Um, so from the technology side, where we've built our own proprietary technology that fuels all of our backend and our clients' backend, 
uh, similar to a Shopify slash ClickFunnels type of system. Um, aside from that, we also do all of the creative. So we put together all the creative assets. Um, we own our own fulfillment houses. So we have uh, three, three facilities currently, one in Asia, one in Europe, and uh, one here in the US. Uh, we do all of our own call center work um, and same thing with call center. So Asia, Europe, and North America. So we have 24 seven uptime. And then most importantly, and what we're probably best at doing, something that I've been doing for the last 14 years is buying traffic across all the major platforms online. So Facebook, Instagram, Google, Native, um, and we buy media at scale and we buy that media around the world to different e-commerce offers for ourselves and for our clients. And I I started media buying um, myself personally sometime in 2006, um, late 2005, 2006, um, you know, I was doing a lot of lead gen at that time for finance companies. Um, so really started for a company that I had built in the finance industry for mortgages and debt, um, where I was buying a lot of the media via Google. Um, you know, and then I, I, I learned about affiliate marketing a few, few years later and really started to scale that out based on, you know, what I had learned from the different affiliates that we started to work with. And then once Facebook, uh, once their platform was up and running, I, I, I was probably one of the first people buying at scale on Facebook, really mastered the Facebook platform. And, in, you know, in the very early days, it, it was really easy, whereas today, obviously, it's a, you know, a, a different animal. Um, and I'm also not spending much time media buying at this point, which is probably a good thing because um, I'm probably not the best media buyer in the world, right? We have an awesome team. I've, so while I've been buying media for, for a long time, um, you know, my skill is really at building, uh, you know, systems and really creating and developing products. Um, but again, you know, if I go back to the origin, I was a media buyer. Um, and, you know, it, Facebook is really, I think, what, what got me to this point in terms of, you know, where I realized how much scale there was. I mean, Google was great in the early days and, you know, I was buying off all of the old, uh, you know, display platforms. But, but when I started to buy on Facebook and I saw how much scale was there, it was like game changing. Um, and I mean, obviously now the rest is, is history in terms of what, you know, what marketers have been able to do on the Facebook um, platform. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Matt, you got to, it's your turn, man. What do you got? <laughs> Jordan, Jordan, uh, Jordan pretty well summarized it, right? We're, we're performance marketers. So we work, <clears throat> you know, I like to tell folks that we, um, we do performance marketing and we do all the things that, that come in e-commerce and a little bit, a little bitty bundle for ourselves. And we do it for clients too. And I think we can, <clears throat> it's fun. DFO is a, a different animal because I think they can scale up and scale down or we can scale up and scale down as clients need and as we need. Right. So if you're somebody that's, uh, just needs customer service help or just needs logistics and fulfillment help, like, yeah, we can do that. Um, we can also do it soup to nuts, too. If you're looking for creative and you're looking for media buying and you're looking for CPA-style buys or you're looking for agency-style buys or you're looking for, um, you know, that whole holistic thing along the e-commerce chain, like, that's our bread and butter. We can we can do the back-end stuff, too. We can help you get banking up and running. We can help you get uh, fulfillment centers connected. We can help you get customer service routed in. So. I think it's, I think that we have, there are a lot of people that do, there are a lot of 
companies that do some of what we do, but I don't think there are many that can do that along that chain. I think that makes us valuable and I think it makes us uh, uh, different in this space. Yeah, I mean, just hearing you guys talk, like uh, you've been doing this for a long time and what you've built is, it's big, man. It sounds really big. Um, multiple different countries and all the experiences that you guys have gone through. Um, gosh, can you take us back and what were those, what were those beginning days like? Like you obviously had to fail and make mistakes. You don't guys, I can tell guys like you, you're big risk takers and it's obviously paid off. What, what have been some times where it, the check bounced if, if I can say it that way. I, you know, so, so I, like how far back do you want to go? Um, you know, do you want me to give you a little bit of background? I, you know, I'm not sure if, yeah. if the value is in like me starting off where, um, you know, in the very early days where I was basically, you know, one of the first people selling products on eBay and, you know, made oh, it. Wow. You know, yeah. Talk about it. that. I want to hear that. All right. So, so <laughs> yeah, I'll take you guys way back. So as a young man, my, my dad was a, was an antiquarian. Basically he was in the antiques industry. And um, he, his business, he had a storefront business uh, in New Jersey, but on the weekends, he, um, he basically did this antique flea market in, uh, in, in the Chelsea area of Manhattan. And I used to come into the city with him on the weekends and I'd basically work there for him. And uh, we'd go in at like 3.30 a.m. on a uh, Saturday morning. Um, we'd work till the evening Saturday night. We'd go home and then we'd be back same time Sunday and basically work till, I don't know, probably 10 p.m. on a Sunday night. And um, it was a really interesting place because this is back in the, uh, you know, for me at least, it was back in like kind of the mid 90s. New York was like still a really sketchy place. Um, that area of New York was also very sketchy. There was, you know, all these weird things going on. Like when I, when I would be driving in with my dad coming in from Jersey at like 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, people would be getting out of clubs. There was drunk people. There was homeless people. There was drug addicts. There was prostitutes everywhere. There was all kinds of crazy things going on in the streets of New York. So I think just from seeing that, right, just like coming in and then getting to the, to the market, and it was an outdoor market. And basically, the market would be open, you know, summer, spring, winter, fall. It didn't matter. You were there. And, um, you know, when, when we'd come in in the morning, we'd basically start setting up. And really, the first few hours of the day was when all these celebrities would come and they would buy stuff. So I would meet all these really interesting people. Um, you know, I think before you had mentioned Ed Norton. So I met Ed Norton there before I met the model, Naomi Campbell, um, you know, a, like a large, diverse group of celebrities and athletes that would come in the mornings to buy all these different, you know, there was watch dealers, there was antique dealers, there was people selling furniture, all these like really amazing things that people could buy at this flea market. So it was like a high end flea market. Huh, um, and then the rest of the day, we'd be dealing with just kind of like the normal New Yorkers that would be there or tourists that were coming in. But the mornings were, were certainly really interesting. And I, I met some really interesting people along the way. So, you know, after working there for a few years for my dad, what I realized is that I had no interest in his business at all. Zero. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great business. It was, it was good for him. It was not interesting for me. But I wound up meeting... Uh, a gentleman that worked there who was basically dealing in watches. And I was always really fascinated by, by watches, super interested in watches and all kinds of watches, right? Like low end watches, high end watches, just anything that was a watch. Um, so I was talking to him one day and I asked him if I could work for him. And he basically looked at me like I was insane. He's like, do you actually know anything about watches? I was like, well, I know that I like watches, it's but you know, he started asking me some <laughs> questions and I was like, 
I, I don't know. So he's like, I'm not going to hire you and pay you. But what I can do is if you want to come on as an apprentice, I'll basically let, let you help me. And the way it'll start is, you know, in the beginning stages, you'll help me break down my tables in the morning and, you know, you'll set up the cases and you'll clean the watches. And at night on Sunday nights, you'll break everything down. You'll put all the watches away. And while we're doing that, I'll, t I'll start to teach you a little bit about watches and, and how they're made and how they work, et cetera. So I did this for, for him for about a year. And, um, and then he basically set me up with a little booth outside. Um, you know, so basically the way the flea market worked was there was a, like a kind of an indoor area of the flea market, which was in an old parking garage. Um, and then there was an outdoor area where he basically set me up and he was like, you'll be the outdoor guy and you have to be here every weekend. And I don't care if it's raining or snowing or freezing, you'll be out there selling my watches. Yeah. I was going to say, that's why he shoved you outside. Cause yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I had to pay my dues. Right? Like, it's all about paying dues. So um, he set me up outside and uh, basically I, I spent the next year selling watches on the uh, sidewalk of New York city to all kinds of different people. And it was a great experience because I learned a lot about people um, I mean, I learned a lot about business, but I think more importantly, I learned a lot about people, right? Can I ask you, can I ask you this? Did you ever open your jacket and say, Hey, want to buy a watch? Want to buy a watch? I never, I never opened my jacket and asked anyone if they wanted to buy a watch, but I can tell you a story. Um, one day I was, I was setting up one day I was setting up and this is a true story and I'll, and I'll have to censor it a little bit. Um, yeah. but one day I was setting up and, um, so imagine I'm, I'm setting up my little, like nine by 12 booth. I'm kind of on the, on the corner of 26th and 6th Avenue in New York city, which now is filled with uh, department stores. But at this time it was basically just a giant empty parking lot. And um, this, this gentleman that I actually knew from the, from the market, he was a, he was a gentleman from Brooklyn, a Russian guy. He was also a watch dealer. He was standing on the corner and he was talking to a guy and I didn't recognize the, the guy that he was talking to. Um, so I kind of started to watch what was going on. And what I realized is that a, another guy came up. What I realized is that they basically came to rob the guy. <laughs> so, and, I, and I'm watching this. I, did I tell you this? No, so I'm watching and I'm like watching this and I'm thinking like, fuck, it's really early in the morning. There's nobody around but me watching this. There was a couple other like random people setting up their booths, but there wasn't like any cops around. So now there's the two, there was the guy he was talking to. He's in front of him. A guy comes up on the side and another guy comes up on the other side. Yeah. And I'm watching this whole interaction and I can kind of hear what he said, what, what they're saying, right? I'm like listening very intently at this point. And I hear him at one point say, you fucking Americans, part of my language. I don't know if you can say this, <laughs> but I am from Russia. And if you think you are going to scare me. And then he started, beep, 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 bleep, 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 you know, so I'm <laughs> all of what he was saying, <laughs> this jacket that he has on. And he didn't pull out a bunch of watches, but he pulled out a shotgun <laughs> no and, and started waving it around at them. Oh, and obviously God. at this point, they're like, <laughs> <laughs> and after this happens, I'm watching now. My mouth is, I'm like, I'm like, whoa. Right. And he, he puts the, he basically like takes the shotgun, yeah. he puts it back in the coat, he closes it, he buttons it back up very slowly. He turns to the left and like starts to walk into the, to the market where his booth is. Doesn't say anything about it. Doesn't like, there's no expression on his face. And he just walked up and I watched him I, with my, I'm like watching him walk over to his booth and he like walks up, walks over to the booth and he like wipes everything down and he's like setting everything up. Like, Oh, I'm just going to go about my no big deal. Normal day. Like, 
I was like, all right. So there's also some some bad MFers out here yeah. too. <laughs> In Russia, this happened every day. Yeah, it was, so, it, was, you know. it was pretty. It was really crazy. Dude, that is- um, so anyway, so fast forward a few years, you know, I, I learned a lot about watches and um, in shotgun fulfillment. Yeah, and shotguns and, <laughs> and yeah, and um, so learned a lot about watches and um, I, I, you know, I discovered eBay and um, basically, you know, I was, I was talking to my dad one day and I was like, hey, you know, I, I want to start selling some watches and the guy that I was working for at the time, his name was Ken. And I'm like, you know, um, I talked to Ken and he's going to give me some watches and I'm going to start putting them on this site, the site called eBay. And while I put the watches on, like, why don't we get some of your stuff li- listed up on eBay too? And I can set up two separate sites. So I set up one site for my dad, one site for myself. I was basically running it out of, out of the basement of my dad's house. And um, well, anyway, the watch business on eBay took off for me. And um, it was a very high margin business. Um, you know, basically we were dealing in like low end to mid, mid-level watches. Um, and at that, I, I guess I would consider like a mid-tier watch, sort of like a Tag Heuer or a Movado. And, um, you know, we were able to source these things for about $175. And I was selling them in eBay for $750 a watch, right? So pretty nice margin there. Obviously very inexpensive to ship. Um, so it was a very high margin business. And I had worked a deal with Ken where we would split the profits. So for me as a young guy, it was also a very profitable business. Um, and I wound up running this business, um, you know, for him and then also with my dad, where I was helping my dad basically scale his business for a number of years. And um, well, here I guess is where I, where mistake number one comes in. Um, so while I worked with for, for this guy and alongside Ken for, I guess about four and a half, five years, I never met the connection that he was getting the watches from. And while Ken was a really awesome guy, he was a pretty unhealthy guy and he passed away one day suddenly. And when he passed away, um, I, I lost the connection to be able to, to get any more watches. So I had the inventory that was still on hand. And I had, you know, I, I, at that point I had met his wife and she basically was like, look, you can sell all the inventory that we have, but once it's gone, he never introduced anybody to the person he was getting these watches from and get them anymore. <laughs> so I built up this nice business. We were like one of the first power sellers on eBay. I mean, this is even before like the PayPal days, right? This is like early on. I had built up like this massive following on eBay. And I was like, wow, there's, you know, a couple hundred watches left that I can sell here. There's some watches that'll go out to the flea market. There was apparently a bunch of watches that were on consignment that were going to go back to their original sources. And I was like, holy shit, once these watches sell, what am I going to do? So that was kind of learning lesson number one. Make sure that whenever you're, uh, you know, working with someone, you understand all aspects of that particular business. You know who they are right. and where they are. <laughs> so, so what, I mean, what happened? You just stopped. Selling. Yeah. So I, I mean, I basically sold through the rest of the watches and I had made some money and, um, you know, I had made some pretty smart moves with the money, even as a young guy, like while I was spending some of it, I had, I had made some good investments and, um, you know, I had a few bucks that basically were able to, to sort of get me to the next, onto the next business venture, um, really, which was um, an opportunity to move down to, to Miami with a buddy of mine and, uh, and start a business up with him. Um, so fast, you know, fast forward a few years later, I'd moved down to Miami, finished up college, um, you know, was living in Miami, kind of like working, doing the party life, um, you know, had a really amazing time living down there. And, um, you know, basically running this financial services company. And I realized that 
kind of like my dad's business. I had no interest in financial services at all, but I loved doing the marketing and I loved being able to essentially pull information from people online, right? Mm-hmm. By utilizing surveys or different like lead gen funnels that we were building back then to generate information that we could then funnel into the financial service business. Yeah. So I had a, a, you know, super passionate about that. Mm-hmm. So on the side of, on, on the side, I started to really figure out and learn about marketing, right? Like how I could take what I was doing basically at the company, um, which was generating, you know, somewhere between like 50 and 75 leads a day, through, mostly through Google, how I could expand that, right? And how I could then, at that time, we were very focused on the mortgage industry because it was kind of the hot industry, right? 2003, 2004, 2005, and how I could take those skills and basically apply them to other verticals in the financial space. So, um, at, you know, it was initially mortgage and then it was, ins- you know, insurance, right? So auto life and health. Um, and then as the economy started to take a downturn, um, you know, that's that settlement, that consolidation, credit counseling, et cetera. So I'd figured out how to generate leads and I was buying up a lot of the search terms and working with, uh, with a guy basically that was doing the SEO piece of it. So we were dominating a lot of that real estate for many of these different financial categories. Hmm. And, um, when the, when the economy crashed, um, you know, it, it, it had a dramatic impact on our business. But for me personally, because I had set this other business up on the side, I was really able to, to, to diversify the, you know, what I was doing and sort of pivot into this marketing company, right? Which was then at that point had very little overhead other than the cost of generating the leads, which at that time, especially for the categories we were, you know, we were generating leads for, we were one of the first people there. So the cost of those leads were very cheap to us. Um, and we had already established some buyers, um, we basically had a business that was up and running. So this is, you know, sometime around 2008, um, you know, and, and there was still people looking for mortgage leads, but a lot of it was like loan modifications, debt settlement, credit counseling, all these different things that, you know, obviously become very popular when the economy takes a downturn. Um, so I built a small business basically to generate leads. Um, and this is where mistake number two comes into play. So, <laughs> I had built this company and, and, you know, if I fast forward again a few years, I don't want to sit and talk about these things all day, but basically if I fast forward a few years, I, I built a small little business. I'd moved back up from, from Miami to, uh, to New Jersey. Um, I had a small office here and, um, you know, I partnered in with, with a friend of mine and he was basically doing, um, you know, the financial services and I was generating leads and he was one of my buyers. So I had to deal with him or basically, he would take a certain amount of leads exclusively. And then I had a number of other buyers that I had relationships with that I would sell any of the fall off or just excess leads that were coming in. And I was, you know, I was doing the media buying, generating some of the leads. I had a, another gentleman that worked with me that was generating leads. And then we had plugged into, um, you know, the, the affiliate networks to generate leads for us. Right. Because we knew that if we were just doing it ourselves, without affiliates, we weren't going to get any real scale. So we had built out basically separate offerings for these financial verticals to generate leads. And it became a a pretty big business. And because of that, I had hired some developers and started to build all this amazing technology to service our business, Um, which was great, which was great. (laughs) But what I didn't know, and because I didn't at that time have a background in tech, I just knew what I had wanted to service 
our business, but also to help us really grow our, our, you know, our third party business offering. I, I knew what I wanted. So I basically worked with all these developers to build out all this technology. And, um, we were approached by a larger company to, to basically to, to, you know, to sell the company, to sell my company. Right. So we had a bigger company that came to us. They were like, we've been following you guys for a while. We're super interested in what you guys are doing and your clients. We love to buy you guys. And at that point, you know, again, still like fairly young guy. I'd never sold a business before. I'm like, yeah, this, this sounds amazing. Like, of course I want to sell a business. Who doesn't yeah, want an right. exit business? Yeah. Like it's a nice check. I can figure out my next move. Of course I want to sell the business. So, we went through all the diligence. The company was sold. I, you know, I, I had bought in a partner. Um, so I had a partner. I had some of the developers who had some equity in the business. We all cashed out. It was great. Amazing. What I didn't realize is that the technology was actually what they really wanted. Um, so they were buying the business for the tech and that if I had brought on some people to really give me the proper guidance, I probably could have sold the company for 30 or 40 more, 40 times more than what I sold it for. <laughs> oh, the tech was very valuable and the tech that we had built is still being utilized to some extent today. Um, well, there was actually two pieces of technology that were being utilized um, by us that we had built that are now being utilized today. One is called a, uh, basically like a fast lead routing system, which basically we had built this, this system that had an algorithm in it that could tell based on certain criteria where the lead should be routed to like the best buyer to route the lead to who would pay the most money for each particular lead in the, in the cash advance space, they call it a ping tree. Um, and it's now been adopted in the mortgage industry, the insurance industry, and across all these big industries for lead routing. And then the second one was a little, um, we used to use it to gather leads. Um, it was basically a little wheel, kind of like the wheel of fortune wheel. Um, that is now called Wheelio that Shopify uses. Um, so we had built this, I don't know, back in- Oh, the spinner wheel, like on the websites? Yeah. So I'd built yeah. this wheel like eight years ago or no, longer than that. So it's 2019, so in 2008, 11 years ago. Yeah. You're the and Shopify we were, wheel guy. Like and, we were, and, we were using this, and we were using this wheel on all of our sites back in 2008 to help generate leads. It looked a little different. We had built it more like a wheel of a fortune wheel and it actually, um, it had a little more like in, it was a little more intuitive than what the Wheelio guys are using, um, but basically the same concept. And I saw that the company that, that basically bought us then integrated that into their platform and they were utilizing it. And I didn't realize that. Oh, wow. that. You didn't know what anyway. you I still see that thing. I still see that wheel around. All yeah. The I mean, time. our wheel was different and we didn't, we didn't use it as like an exit pop or, you yeah, know, an intense I see, pop. I, I mean, we, we used it more, pop. we used it more to generate, just to generate sales. Yeah. And we had used it for different types of, of businesses where we basically would load it up. And, you know, for instance, if it was someone that was doing debt, we'd basically say like, how much debt do you have? You know, this is how much you can settle your I debt see. for. We'd have yeah. the numbers and then one would be a free consultation. And then we would do, we would basically build content around that. So we created a whole contest formula oh, off nice. of the wheel. So it was, it was pretty cool. So I've got to ask you when you see that, or if, if you see that, does that, does that cause pain inside of you? Or nah, it's nah like, man. It, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just like, you have to learn these things. I mean, you know, like, I guess if you grow up around people and, and my dad was an entrepreneur, but I think it was really, he was an entrepreneur only in the sense that he was very good at what he did, but he, but that's really all he focused on was his business. Right. Whereas for me, I've, I've always been interested in so many different things like, without having proper guidance though, someone to really teach you of like, yeah, if you build this, 
you need to learn how to assess it. And you need, and if you're, and you know, and if you're building this piece of technology, like you should talk to someone before you actually enter into a deal to sell it, because it may actually be worth more than what you think. And you know, when you're dealing with bigger companies, like if you're a small little company and you're young, like be aware of what you built, right. And be aware of that IP and how valuable it can be to somebody else. Because you know, what I didn't know is that's why they were really buying us. I thought they wanted our client base and I thought they were very interested in some of the, like the leads. And I thought they were slightly interested in the tech, but I think I didn't appreciate how valuable it really was at the time. Uh, yeah. You, you know, it's funny too. You talking about, um, you know, you getting into media early kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, all of like Gary Vaynerchuk stories of how he got into YouTube really early with his family business and spent, you know, just a little bit of money to get a lot of it, a lot of traffic but it's going to be the stories that we're telling kids, our, our grandkids, you know, it's like we hear the stories now when people used to go to McDonald's and buy the burger for, you know, a nickel. And, right. and you're, you're going to be the, the ones where we're going to be the guys of, I remember when I could get, you know, media on, on Facebook or traffic for. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, remember, I remember when media was only, like, Facebook was the Wild West and you could buy it at scale. For- well, well, I can tell you, we used, to, we used to buy, we used to generate insurance leads off Facebook and, um, these were basically like simple zip submits. So basically just, you know, enter a zip code and we would get paid for the zip code and we would get paid somewhere around six to $7. And I was able to generate those leads for like 25 to 50 cents. Wow. Oh man. And you're saying you can't do that now? <laughs> Wait, so are you, are you about to make an offer on our podcast right now? <laughs> it comes. What kind of tech do you guys have running in the background? <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, that, that was lesson number two. And I mean, basically, yeah. uh, that, you know, the, we had sold the company and um, I, I was looking for something to do. And I, I didn't, one of the, the, the networks that I was working with, I became very friendly with the rep there. And uh, he was, he was kind of messing around with me one day. And he was like, why don't you come work here? And I was like, well, I've never worked for anyone. But yeah, send me a job offer. Like, and, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take a job. So I get an offer, I, I get an email the next day and, and it's, this is kind of embarrassing because I wasn't that young at the, at the time, but I get an email from some person that worked at this company and I'm like, what is this? And I'm like opening, I'm looking at it and I had never really seen a job offer before. So <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I guess this is the job offer. Maybe he was really serious. <laughs> this, guy, this guy's 35 years old and at the time he'd never gotten a job offer before. And I'm like, this is a serious entrepreneur. And I'm like, man, I'm like, man, this actually looks like pretty good gig like maybe I should take this so I, so I took a job at basically a network in the city and and you know it's funny like I, I joke around with my buddy all the time we're, we're actually really good friends today and um, he's like you know I know when we hired you like he was like I was talking to the to the owner of the you know like the CEO of the company at the time and he was like we all kind of had like a little bet in, in, in house that you weren't going to be here longer than six months and part of the reason that they really wanted me to come on board is because they also wanted to build up their portfolio within the financial services space. I wasn't able to go out and build another company like mine because I had just sold it. And we had um, obviously a, um, an agreement in place. So I couldn't replicate the business, but I could certainly go somewhere else and work and help them build up their financial service offering. So basically I, I was hired to do that. And um, I think I quickly realized, like I have many times in life realizing different things that again, like I wanted to, to, to be out of the financial services industry. Right. So I started to really look into what was going on with e-commerce and while working for the company, um, you know, the very early, early days I had, um, you know, I'd 
like reached out to and pitched companies like Rent the Runway and Airbnb. And I bought these companies on to basically buy media from us as they were just starting up. And, you know, most of them didn't stay with us for long periods of time because they sort of outgrew what we were doing. But it was really interesting to work with those companies, you know, when they were four or five people. I remember working with Rent the Runway and it was basically, I was, I was working with like the owners of the company who started this company. And, you know, I, I, I remember telling my, my girlfriend, who was then my fiance, who's now my wife, like, oh, I found this company that's like renting high-end clothes to women. Like, what do you think of this idea? And she's like, yeah, I don't know if that's going to stick. <laughs> <laughs> it's a neat idea, but you know, it's like, it's going to flop. Yeah. I don't think that one's going to work. And, uh, you know, obviously seeing that become, you know, super successful. And then obviously the early days of like Airbnb where, you know, I'm, I'm working with them. We're doing some like lead gen campaign um, for them via email and then buying some display ads for them. And, you know, it's kind of like one of those things also where it's like, this is a really interesting business model. The people that I'm talking to on the phone are really smart, but is this going to work? Like, is this really going to take off in any kind of big way? Right. Like, are they going to really, you know, are they going to disrupt the hotel industry? And now, I mean, you look at their business and you're like, you know, like they're, they're 10x of what the hotel industry is, to, you know, at, like collectively, it's crazy what they've built. Yeah. What a cool thing, man. And I'll, I'll tell you, because, you know, we're all in marketing here that's uh, in this conversation. That, that's probably one of the neatest things is to be able to be like on the inside track and meet those people and see their businesses and, and you know, where they're headed, the concept. I love just seeing that from the inside. And how oh, man, it's, you guys amazing, to be a part of that. It's the most amazing thing. And that's, you know, that's what's awesome about being, being an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I think, you know, entrepreneurs have this very keen sense of being able to recognize other entrepreneurs. And what I really, you know, I think every step of the way, what I've really loved about what I've been able to accomplish in my life is to work with, you know, either entrepreneurs or decision makers. And even in the early days of like Rent the Runway or Airbnbs or some of the other clients that I worked with, for the most part, I was always dealing with either the founder or someone that was, you know, two steps away from the founder, right? So it wasn't like I was trying to deal with big agencies where I had to like beg them to work with us. And they were like, hey, can you put together like a 30 page pitch deck and come to our office and then presenting to people that probably know nothing about business or have never sold anything in their lives. And they're the one they're the ones that are kind of making the decisions for these big agencies. Yeah. If you're going to win the business, it was like, I could talk to someone and say like, yeah, I'll put together like a three page pitch deck for you. Here's what we do. And either you want to work with us or not. And that was always really awesome for me, right? Like not having to go through that, that, that whole process of like, well, it's going to take three months because we have to make decisions. So, you know, being able to work with decision makers, being able to work with people that can think and make decisions very quickly being able to work with people that recognize when maybe there's potential issues and they can pivot their business or the opportunity to make it a new business, you know, a new business decision or opportunity based on our conversations. Yeah. And you know, I think that's part of what's really awesome about being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And you learn a lot from that. I mean, I've learned a lot from that. I've learned a lot from people. And I think by doing all these different, these different businesses and meeting all these people throughout the course of my life, it's what led me to, you know, to DFO, right? So you asked about DFO and DFO is now seven years old. We're about 350 people. Um, we have nine offices around the world. And, you know, a lot of that, um, I could say a lot of the infrastructure, um, you know, was certainly 
um, assisted in and, and grown, you know, basically like my, my, my business partner really was the one who helped push the, you know, push us in the direction of creating this infrastructure. But I think for me, it was also thinking about all the opportunities I've had throughout the course of my life. And if I go back to the early days when I was even selling on eBay or, or the flea market, meeting people from around the world or sending watches to people in other countries, where I always sort of thought about it of like, all right, it's great to sell to people in the US, but there's also all these other people that live in amazing countries out there. Like, yeah, we should be selling to them as well, yeah. right? And that's the one thing, like when you're, when you're doing financial lead generation, you're basically just focusing on people in the US, right? Like we weren't generating leads for anyone outside of the US, whereas, you know, within DFO, our whole business is built on the backbone of like, we are a global company. We wanna work with people, in, in multiple countries. We want to sell to consumers in multiple countries. And if we're going to do that, we also then need to have people that are in these countries, boots on the ground. So we understand the markets that we're actually working into. I think, I think people get really, <clears throat> I think if people get really fixated on selling in the U S you know, you've got a business that does million, two million, three million bucks a year. And it's great. And you know, you're making a great margin on it. Um, you know, what we tell people is <clears throat> you're, the world is a big place and there are 300 million people in the United States, but there are a lot more outside of the United States, right? And if you look at the buying power of people in Europe and in South America and especially in Asia, I mean, it's just like, yeah, China and the United States are, are gigantic markets, right? And out of that big pie, you know, they make up, uh, you know, a third of it. But that is another two thirds of the whole world that has like serious buying power. And I think a lot of, especially those small, mid-sized e-commerce businesses, I think a lot of them uh, either forget that or they get very, they get tunnel vision and uh, they focus on the U.S. And, and that's great, right? But somebody like us, we can come in and say, this, more, this, this product, this service, your brand is going to resonate in France. It's going to resonate in London. It's going to resonate in Brazil and Argentina and whatever it is. Like, let us help you do that. I think that's, I think that's some of the brand promise that, that DFO brings to the table. That, that's, that's yeah, that's super cool, man. But like, you know, me listening to you and I'm sure the guys that, you know, people that are listening to this podcast would say, I don't even know where to get started. Like, <laughs> well, how do I, how do I I don't even know where to start with it. Sell it. I'm going to sell my product in Italy. You're going to buy my pasta. You know, like, like hey, what's yeah, the So, so that's uh, it's a very good point that you bring up, and um, you know, I mean, part of that um, is you know things that we've been able to help many of our clients with and people in our community, right? Because I mean, we've been there, we've done it. So part of that's like people come to us for that, you know, for for that education, right? Um, or at least to help them into those particular markets. Um, I could say for us as a business and you, you had, you know, you, you sort of hit the nail on the head when we first started here because of, you know, because of my nature and my business partner's nature, um, you know, we, we are fairly aggressive, right. And we are risk takers. So a lot of it, I would say was, um, you know, basically by trial and error, right. I mean, we had to learn things as we've been building the company and as we made a decision very early on in building the company that, we were going to be a global business. Um, you know, we made a lot of mistakes, right? Um, and I think, you know, what we're sort of here to talk about today is, is some of those mistakes that we've made. Um, 
And I mean, I can go on and on and tell you stories for days about all these mistakes that we've made. I mean, I think I'll, you know, for the sake of time, I'll try to focus on a few, few of the, the bigger yeah. ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. Real quick. Hey, can, can you do this? I'm super curious. Can you please tell me some stories of mistakes you've made globally, like in another country? Or oh, like yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I get I, to tell them the post, the post one from. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. And, and so I guess, you know, just to, just to sort of like wrap up that last thought, right? Um, yep. You know, a lot of it was trial and error. We had, to, we had to learn the hard way with, you know, the markets that we wanted to sell into, um, you know, how we were going to facilitate that, how we were going to handle fulfillment, how we were going to handle customer service. And I think what, what happened early on is we had some very early success. And, you know, as we all know in life, when you have, you know, when you have early success, you know, sometimes, you know, I'd say some, the, the success probably happened too quickly. We got a little yeah. bit ahead of ourselves, right? And it made us feel very, um, you know, confident that we could basically do anything, right? And, and in the, the, the very early days, we were selling in the U.S. Um, we were selling in most of the um, English-speaking countries. So, you know, U.K., Australia. Um, we were doing a little bit of business into South Africa, though that was always like a tricky one for us. And we learned some lessons there. Um, you know, Ireland, uh, you know, basically Canada, basically any of the English speaking countries. And then we started to branch out to the non-English speaking countries, you know, Europe, uh, sorry, Germany, um, France, Italy, Spain, and really focusing our attention on, on Europe. And um, I think once we felt that we had a great handle on Europe, we were going to start moving into, um, you know, other continents. So, you know, one of, one of the places that we had identified early on that we wanted to sell into um, you know, was, was Latin America. And we wanted to particularly, you know, spend a lot of time focus, focusing our attentions on Brazil for a number of different reasons. Um, you know, but really because there's a big population there and in terms of, um, you know, economics and growth, um, you know, Brazil is the leader of, of Latin America. And we figured if we could really figure out how to sell at a high level into Brazil, then all the other countries would basically fall into line. Okay. So, um, you know, I'll talk about Latin America a little bit and there's two stories there. Um, one is actually in dealing with Brazil in itself. Um, but then one is really what happened after, even after we had an incident in Brazil where we felt that we had now resolved everything and figured it all out. And then we ran into another issue into, uh, Argentina. Um, so basically in, in you know, Brazil's a, Brazil's a really interesting country. Um, and I, you know, I've been there now a few times, so I understand when, when people say that, I, I definitely understand what they mean. Um, you know, it's almost, uh, on one hand, Brazil is very beautiful. Um, you know, on the other hand, it's, uh, depending on where you are, it, it can be very unsafe. And, um, yeah, the favelas. You know, it's not, it's not one of those places where, you know, I've, I've traveled, the, you know, around a lot, right? I mean, I've been to a lot of places in the world, but Brazil is one of those places where like when, when they really mean it's unsafe, like, they mean it's unsafe, you know, when you're walking down the street and like, you know, here you are in the U S and you see like a sign on the side of a road in the rural area. And it's like, beware of gear in Brazil. There's signs where it's like, beware of man with gun who will rob you. Right. Like that's just kind of how they live. And we have an office down there. And, you know, I remember the first time flying down to meet the staff and I took them to lunch and I was like, so, you know, what do you love about Brazil? No, the weather and the culture and the history. And what do you dislike about Brazil? Well, I dislike the fact that I basically live a life where I'm uncomfortable and uneasy all the time because it's very violent and 
there could, you know, at any given moment, something can happen where someone will try to rob me or kill me or kidnap me, whatever. And this is coming from local people, right? So you start to hear that and you're like, shit, <laughs> this is kind of a wild place. I need to be careful here. Yeah. So anyway, we, um, you know, we, we started to, to sell products, um, you know, years back into Brazil and, um, we had done, I guess we thought we did the, the you know, the proper amount of research there. Um, but we, we failed to set up local banking and, um, basically what happened was we were leaving all of our money in a, a local bank there. And, um, you know, overnight there was a, uh, basically a market crash and, um, you know, I, I had woke up early in the morning and I was reading an article about this, you know, about the currency basically crashing and the market crashing and there was all this political unrest. And um, I had logged into, uh, you know, to our bank account and basically the money that we had made um, wasn't frozen, um, but basically it, you know, it, it had been cut in half overnight um, wow. because of what was going on with their currency. And obviously you guys know e-commerce. Many of your listeners know e-commerce. Um, you know, we're not working with like these massive margins. So when your money is basically cut in half, it cuts out any of your profit. Um, and actually it put us at a, at a fairly, you know, we were selling pretty high volumes there. It put us at a pretty massive loss. Um, and there was nothing that we could do about it. Um, other than the fact that if we would have known to basically take the money and move it out of the country and settle it into our U S bank accounts, um, as opposed to leaving it there, which we could have then realized as profit as opposed to loss, um, would have been the smart thing to do. But basically we, you know, I, I think we overestimated the market. We overestimated the, you know, the, um, you know, the political situation there. And I, we were being sort of foolish and just leaving and settling the money there, thinking that we could then roll it into the next project that we were going to do in Brazil. And the money was basically wiped out. And um, it took a really long time for the money to recover. And the reality is, is like at some, you know, we, we, we basically said we were going to ride it out. But at some point we needed to utilize that capital for other projects. So I wound up pulling all the money out. And, you know, when I look at those campaigns that we were running, and again, we were running very high volumes of traffic. It was a massive loss for us, Wow, um, which really sucked. And, you know, I think if <laughs> that's, that's an understatement. Yeah. I, you know, I think if we wouldn't have underestimated the market and, and been, you know, a little bit more aware of what was going on in terms of the, uh, you know, the political uh, climate there, again, we would have basically just had another account set up that would have swept the money over into the U.S. and been, you know, if not daily, at least settling our money weekly. Wow. So how, how long ago did that happen? Uh, when was that? That was, that was before you. So that was probably sometime 2013, end of 2013, 2014. Yeah. Um, so, you know, five years ago, five and a half years ago. So that was one good lesson. And, you know, I, I think at that point, like for a while, we basically stayed out of the market, but then we decided that, you know, there was no point to stay out of the market. Like we needed to get back into selling into Brazil and, um, you know, into Mexico, into Chile, into Colombia. So we started opening up all these different countries in Latin America. And, um, I, you know, we had, we had opened an office there. We had a team. So I, I think also as a company, we were certainly a lot more aware of, of what was going on in the, in, in not only the Brazilian market, but also in Latin America in general. Yeah. And, yeah. um, 
What happened in Argentina? Yeah, so we then decided, you know, I was actually, I had, I had met a gentleman who was living in Argentina and, um, you know, we started talking about e-commerce and um, he was telling me like, you know, you guys should really be selling products here. Like there's a need, the economy is, um, you know, while their economy also is, is quite a bit unstable, like at this particular time, the economy was actually doing okay there. And, um, you know, he had basically presented me the opportunity and pitched it to me as like, it, it would be fairly simple. And while there was some, some minor logistics issues, um, you know, it wasn't anything that we wouldn't be able to, to resolve. So, you know, I, I talked to my partner and, and some of the other, you know, key decision makers here. And we basically decided that we were going to enter into the, to the market there. And we did it slowly, right? So kind of unlike Brazil, when we first started there, where, you know, we saw some early success in Brazil and basically said, hey, like, we're, we're having immediate success. Let's scale really aggressively. Um, and then obviously we got caught up in the, you know, the geopolitical issue. We said, like, let's start here very slowly and let's monitor, you know, our, you know, the, the CS team and see what kind of reaction we're getting from the market to our products. So we started to sell one product line there. And um, I remember asking the team, like, hey, how's everything looking? And they were like, yeah, everything looks fine. We're not getting any complaints. The chargebacks are low. There's no refunds. Um, you know, everything looks like it, you know, everything's basically pointing to um, this being a really solid market for us. Hmm. So we said, okay, that's great. Like, let's start to scale up. So we opened up two new products and basically we started to scale. And the, the great thing about Argentina, or at least what we thought the great <laughs> at the time was that the cost of media was very low and there was very little competition there. So our margins were much better than what they were in, in Brazil, for example. So, um, so we basically started to scale. About three weeks later, I get a call from our head of CS and um, he's like, hey, I, I don't know what's going on, but like we're getting a slew of complaints right now that all these people that we're selling products to, and you know, this is obviously from like the first round of products that were going out, they're not getting any of their products. And I was like, all right, well, what have we looked at? And um, he's like, well, I started to investigate the traffic and the traffic looks clean. Doesn't appear to be any, you know, any, any kind of like fraud taking place. So I'm like, all right, well, let's, um, you know, let's talk to our fulfillment company and let's see what's going on there and let's see if there's an issue. So, um, you know, anyway, we, we reached out to the company that we were dealing with um, and they were like, yeah, like the packages are going out. They're, they're, they're basically landing at the postal, you know, their post, their, their post office there. Things, things appear to be fine. There, there aren't any issues. Like I can't, I can't explain what's going on. Yeah. And the, the complaints were like, I mean, they were like mounting up in a really big way. I got a call from the bank and the bank's like, Hey, there's some issues because we're getting all these complaints coming in and there's some issues with chargebacks now. And I'm like, what the, what's, what's going on here? Like we, we couldn't figure <laughs> out what was going on. So after spending the next few days doing some investigations, what we realized was that our products were being landed there. They were being cleared. And then there was somebody on the inside that was basically taking all of our products and they were stealing them. Oh my God. You mean like at customs? At customs. Yeah. All of them, but all of the products. Wow. So they cleared them and then basically they were just taking all of them. Um, and it was kind of interesting. We found out because 
Um, well, we found out because we saw some of them being resold somewhere else. Um, <laughs> oh, no. And then we realized like, wait, these are our products um, that are being sold into different markets. They, were, they weren't selling them into Argentina, but they were selling them into other markets into Latin America. So they, they had obviously also been monitoring some of the things that they were doing because they knew where we were selling products. So they were basically falling behind us, replicating um, those sales in those, in those markets. Wow. And, um, you know, I think out of, you know, 10,000, 15,000 orders that were placed, um, I don't know, about 1,500 were delivered and the rest of them went undelivered, which obviously created a massive yeah. issue for us as a company. Every product is somewhere between, you know, 70 and a hundred dollars. Um, you know, and you've so got 13,500 complaints to come in for non-delivered items that we've already bought, that we've already bought the media for. And we've already paid to send the product out. Well, you can imagine what that number looks like when you start figuring out what the loss is. Yeah. And, you know, it's not <clears throat> in a lot of these countries, man, it's not as simple as like here where you could file a complaint. And, you know, as long as you have all of your paperwork documented, you can probably resolve it pretty easily. Yeah, you're pretty much done. Like, yeah. We were basically like, hey, something's going on with our packages. And every person we get on the phone was like, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't, I don't know. Go talk to this other person over here. Yeah. And that person was like, Hey, go talk to that other person over here. Yeah. And basically they pushed us around in circles until at some point we, we basically like threw our hands up and we're like, all right, well, I guess we just got our ass kicked in that market. <laughs> Argentina's there, done. There's not much, there's not much recourse we can make. So we just have to take our losses and move on. Yeah. And, um, yeah. so we did. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we've, we've since, and you know, we've since opened the market back up. Um, but we've put a lot, you know, we've put a lot of better systems in place. So, you know, I, I'm sort of describing this to you in a way where like we had this super efficient way to monitor all this stuff. And at that point in time, I, you know, I think we had a fairly efficient way of doing it. But, you know, when I look at our systems and sort of the way we were monitoring a lot of these things, like we could have done a lot better job, especially in a market that was, you know, was an unknown to us. And in a market where we had heard that, you know, there was some issues with fulfillment there in the first place, um, you know, I, I think we overestimated our initial success, right? And a lot of that's because we weren't seeing any of the issues coming in. And again, I think part of what they were also doing is they made sure with some of the initial orders that were going out, they made sure to deliver them. So they assumed if we also monitored that, you know, we were going to look at our numbers and say, hey, everything looks good you know, with the assumption that like, hmm, maybe these guys can really scale. And as they saw more packages in coming in, they just figured like, Hey, this is, this is an easy one for us. Let's take it. So they took advantage of us. <laughs> um, you know, it was a good learning lesson for sure. <clears throat> Obviously a big loss, um, but a good learning lesson. So talk to, as we wrap up here, talk to the guys that are listening they're hearing your stories and man, I appreciate you being so vulnerable and just sharing those with us. Um, I think it'd be helpful to understand what's going on up in here because I think there are a lot of people listening to this where they're like, they're probably saying to themselves like, man, I would have checked out a long time ago and probably would have figured something else to do. Uh, but I mean, you guys kept going and it's obviously paid off because of where DFO is at now. So like what was going on upstairs that allows you to keep going and get to the place that you are today? Well, I, I mean, I think in any business, right? I mean, and again, I mean, even with, you know, when I was selling watches as a very young guy, I mean, 
you know, seeing an instance where I'm standing outside and I see potentially a guy almost getting robbed on the corner of the street, I could have said like, yeah, this isn't for me. It's probably not safe to be out here, especially with these watches. I mean, you know, I had some low end watches, but I was also selling some high end watches. And, and to be honest, I mean, New York at the time wasn't like a super safe place to be, especially at that time of, of in the morning or night, you know, depending on how you look at it. Um, yeah. But I also saw the opportunity. And I think, you know, the way that I look at what I'm doing today is, I mean, it's, it's all about assessing the opportunity, right? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's road bumps along the way in any business that you're setting up, right? And you have to then make that decision as an entrepreneur, like, do I continue to go forward based on what I believe the business can do and based on what I believe we're doing here today? Or do I, or yeah, do I just shut it down or, or sort of take a step back and say, hey, you know what, like, we've had some issues and we've had a lot of issues, right? So, I mean, I, I mentioned Brazil, I mentioned Argentina. I mean, we've had issues in, in Germany. We've had issues in Asia. We, we've had issues in the last seven years in a lot of the different countries that we've sold into. But I think after every one of those issues, it all comes back to the same thing. Do I want to just sell into the US, into the UK, into Australia where things are a little easier? Or do we want to be different? And do we want to you know, do we really want to set ourselves apart? Right. And I think, again, as a company, yeah. as Matt mentioned earlier, I mean, that's, that's our, that's our company goal, right? Like I wouldn't have, when we first started the company, it was just DFO. And then we basically added the global performance commerce because we said, yeah, DFO doesn't really describe everything that what we do. What we really do here is, you know, we're a global company. We're involved in commerce. I mean, e-commerce is a part of it, but we're, we're involved in commerce. We're involved in trade, right? We're selling products around the world. And we do all of this on a performance basis, right? And if we're going to, if that's, if that's what we're going to call ourselves, then we really have to be in it and we have to be doing that and we have to do it at the very highest level. And in order to do so, we're going to have to take some lumps along the way because that's how you learn. Like it's, it's, it's yeah. never going to just be that easy. Like anyone that says, Hey, I just woke up and I thought of a business idea and plug the business in. And here I am 10 years later and there hasn't been any issues. Like, I mean, one, it, one, I don't believe that person, but two, it's like, yeah, then I need to really like hear their story because maybe they have a playbook that, no, that nobody else in the world has. Yeah. Right. Because you hear it from every entrepreneur, yeah, every level. Yeah. They have a playbook. You just got to buy it. It's an e-course. It's like, yeah. It's like, it's like, teach me that For because, only because I want to learn how to run a business without any issues. Right. And I mean, we've had issues in, you know, across the business and, and I mean, even in the U S you deal with issues, but you know, when you're selling into a lot of countries and even if you have teams doing the research for you and you think you understand exactly what you're getting into, there's always going to be something that happens that you then have to take a step back from and figure out how to solve it. And, you know, I think it's being persistent. It's having a really smart team around you, um, you know, to help navigate through those issues. And, and then really, I think beyond any of that, it's just having the will to want to be in those new markets. Right. So, you know, we, we've had issues in Brazil. Well, guess what? We sell in Brazil today. We've had had issues in Argentina. Guess what? We sell there today. There, there isn't a country in the world that we're not selling into today that at one point or another, we had an issue. So you take those issues, you bring them back to the team, you get all the brain power in the company to assess the issues and you figure out how you can come back into that market better. And, you know, I think we've done that. And I'm sure there will be there will be mistakes along the way, but they won't be the same type of mistakes, right? And I think yeah. in terms of being able to sell into a multitude of different countries, 
Um, we also, as, a, as an organization, will not underestimate um, you know, the level of difficulty in which um, you know, it is to operate in some of those countries. Yeah, yeah. And, and I love the theme throughout this. It's that you know, the, the pivot or persevere. It's almost knowing you know, the right times to make those changes and um, you know, chase the market or chase a, a business idea um, and the right time just to persevere through, through a challenge and where you know it's the right thing and it was just a, a hard situation like the bank thing um, where you couldn't have predicted that and you learned from it, you're able to keep persevering through that. So I think those are great things I mean, for our listeners to, to think about, you know, in any business situation, you have to constantly, one, I think another thing you brought up that was really smart is, you know, business owners have to be decisive. A good leader, a good entrepreneur makes decisions. And that doesn't mean they're always going to be the right ones. No, <laughs> but, but it's, it's about making a decision. And, no, and if you make that decision, you kind of, you have to almost live and die by that decision. Like you have to follow through on it whether it's the right one or the wrong one. Yeah. And, you know, like going back to what you said about Brazil, you know, I think from our perspective, we looked at it like saying, okay, we're banking here. If there's an issue, the bank will tell us, right? So we were, we were being dependent upon somebody else to relay information from us. When the reality is, is like we're selling in a market where there's all kinds of political unrest happening all the time. We as a company should have been more aware of what was going on as opposed to relying upon you know, the bank or other partners. And it's the same thing with, with fulfillment. I mean, our logistics partner was getting the products cleared, but they hadn't really told us that there was these issues that had happened in the past at, at this type of level, right? Because again, like as we started to dig in, we realized like, yeah, we're not the only ones that this, we're not the first, I'm sure we're not the last that these issues have happened to. So it's also making sure that when you, you know, you have the right partners, but also asking the right questions out of your partners. And yeah. if you don't feel like you're getting the right answers from them, then maybe they're not the right partner for your business, right? And I think that was certainly in the case of the fulfillment company we were working with. If I would have known this then, because they weren't relaying the right information, maybe we wouldn't have partnered with them. Um, you know, with the bank, well, banks in Brazil are, I mean, even today are still very tricky. So it's hard to say like, would we have utilized them as the bank or not? I think I would have, basically just said, let's utilize whoever we can as the bank, but make sure that we're just handling settlements in a more effective way. So at least we have more control over the money. And if some of the money does get caught up in something, it's a very small amount as opposed to all of it. The yeah. whole thing, yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah. Well guys, we're out of time. You guys that have listened to this episode of the Battle Ready Brands podcast, talk about fuel for your brand to endure. I mean. Dude, your stories are unbelievable. <laughs> and, uh, you, I'll be honest, it makes me kind of want to take a trip with you guys somewhere. Anytime, <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. You can get it from the horse's mouth. Hey, hey, anytime. Anytime. Yeah, yeah, we've got, we've got a lot of stories, that's for sure. Yeah, Lots of stories. Yeah, Lots of fun stories. I, I love it. I love it. And I, I'm sure this is going to inspire those that are listening to this to go do something that you've never done before. Go out there and try. Think of a way that you can be different. Um, like you guys, I mean, there's a million other e-commerce brands out there, but you guys decided who you wanted to be in what markets and you're out there making it happen. Yeah. The guys. truth is if, if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't, it won't change you. So that's, that's right. kind of a mantra we always say too. It's like, Absolutely. Absolutely. that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I love that. Yep. Then run into those challenges. That's right. That's right. Yep. And run into a wall, blow up and then get up and do it again. So that's right. That's right. Battle Ready Bands Podcast, DFO Global, Matt and Jordan. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Yeah, appreciate guys. it, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Awesome.